good to be with you again. wanted to start off our time. I know we're still mostly dispersed and not here, but wanted to give you a question to chew on for 30, 45 seconds, which is, if you're making a greatest hits list moments of your life, then what would be one of those moments? You can define the greatest hits of your life and what's on that list however you want, and we're not asking for the whole list. We're just saying, like, what would be one of those moments on your life? Please share with people that are in your household or in the chat, and we'll get back in just a little bit. All right, I hope that you had some fun thinking about that. I first got this idea from what is one of, still, I would argue, the greatest television shows ever, which is Lost. And if you were a fan of that, you may remember that in season three, there's an episode entitled Greatest Hits, where one of our characters is having flashbacks to memories in his life that are some of his favorite moments. So it seems only appropriate that I would say one of my greatest hits moments is connected to loss. Uh, When I was getting ready to leave Baylor University after having been there for seminary for four years and then worked full-time there as a chaplain for five years, uh, the chaplain staff I knew was spending a lot of time and energy uh, in preparing a going-away party, which as a Enneagram too, who likes like, oh, don't, don't focus on my needs. Let's focus on all of your needs. Uh, felt a little uncomfortable and unhinged for me, but I was just trying to go with it and not be too, you know, invested in everything. But the more, the closer and closer it got to this day, the more I was like, they're spending a lot of time and energy in this. And I was like, and I don't even know what I would want from this, but I'm really worried because they're spending so much time and energy in this that whatever they've done, I'm not going to enjoy. And I was going to be like, oh, I really appreciate that. That's wonderful. But, you know, I'm like, I don't know why you thought I would enjoy this, but I do appreciate your effort. And uh, I can remember as I was walking into uh, the, like, sort of chaplain's office area where the celebration was going to head, right before I was going to turn the corner where the the party, the celebration was going to be, it dawned on me. I was like, oh, what I want is a lost going away party. But then I was like, oh no, now that I've named what I want internally, there's like a thousand other things that this could be. And if it's not the one thing that I want it to be, now I'm going to really struggle with pretending like I'm grateful for what they have done. And this is all like, this happens like in, you know, a microsecond. And and so fortunately I only had to take like one or two more steps and I turned the corner. And then of course there is this uh, lost party that was incredibly well themed and intentional, and my heart was like, oh, I feel seen, I feel known, I feel loved, Uh, and it was such a wonderful time of uh, connecting with colleagues and friends and students that I had known uh, throughout my time at Baylor, and just was this incredibly meaningful time. But when my expectations kicked in, I realized all of a sudden, like, oh, this this could get bad. I'm, I'm really glad that it didn't go that way, and that's why it's one of my greatest hits, but it could have easily gone a very different direction. Uh, Another moment that I don't know if I would quite label greatest hits, but it's still very memorable for me in my life, was the first time the church that I spent my teenage and college years in here in Austin uh, invited me, I think I was about two years into seminary, to preach at the church on Sunday. And it's like a very 
different thing. It wasn't my first sermon ever to preach by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, it was my first time to like preach at a place where people like, I remember when you got in trouble for this, right? (laughs) Or I know when you didn't, you know, anything you know, I taught you, right? Kind of thing, because I've been your Sunday school teacher. I've been your minister for this or your minister for that. And so I can remember, even though I'm not pretending like I had dozens and dozens of sermons, but this was far from my first time to preach a message there just was a different energy for me in the room as I was returning home. This sense of like, will I be able to both be authentically who I am and to honor who they are and their contribution to my life? And what's going to be the conversation that happens between myself and this congregation, which was not just any congregation, but this community that had been formative to who I was the expectation seemed even more heightened in some sense. Now, that was probably all on me. What I found, I think I could have probably literally gotten sick on the platform and like half of the church would have been like, that was the best, you know, what a great illustration you had there for us. We really appreciate all that you did and were able to share with us. Really? You appreciated that I got sick up there? Uh, In all reality, the, the church that I was in was very loving and caring and gracious and so probably didn't really matter all that much. But for me, the expectations seemed really heightened. If something is a greatest hit in your life, then chances are that it was a good moment that matched your expectations. You played perfectly in that recital. You had the most amazing day. You welcomed a child and everything seemed right with the world. And it probably allowed a lot of pleasurable feelings to stir up within you. Hopefully even as you rethought about what might be one of your life's greatest hits today. In our text, Jesus' homecoming starts off much like that. You can imagine his family, who are actually strangely unmentioned in this homecoming return, expecting this to be a banner day for their kin. And it could have been if Jesus could have left well enough alone. Our text starts off with everything going as expected. Jesus could have just basked in the praise and adulation and been the hometown hero, but this is often not the way of peacemaking. Our text begins, Then he said to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus acknowledges the now. We might be tempted to otherwise overly spiritualize the passage from Isaiah that Jesus has just written to make it something that is far off into the future or some other day when perhaps we've achieved either greater personal or communal enlightenment. But Jesus anchors it to the now. He says, today, right now, where you are, This is where God is to be found. This is where the good news of God's liberation, healing, justice, forgiveness, peacemaking is to begin. It is in this moment. It's not someplace else out there beyond you. It's right here among you, with you, in you. Hope is showing up. It is on our doorstep Richard Rohr says this, the future is by definition the unsayable and the uncontrollable, filled with paradoxes, mysteries, and confusions. Therefore, the future is always scary. Thus, we search for predictability, explanation, and order. 
to give ourselves some sense of peace and control. Much of our present journey has been stretched and strained by this very unknowing. Being out of control uh, can feel like dying as we have witnessed and weathered threats of global pandemic, racial injustice, a statewide freeze, the apparent erosion of democracy and inaction towards climate change, just to name a few of the communal things we've all been experiencing over the last few years. And much of our longing for return to normalcy, however that is defined, is really a longing or stating a need for some safety, for some sense of belonging, for some sense of predictability. This nearly two-year space of unknowing and falling has us falling apart. Being forced to face that control is an illusion, faces us to lay down the false comfort our sense of control brought with it. And that is painful. One of my mentors uh, likes to say that control is an illusion, but it's her favorite illusion. And I really resonate with that. I can be like, yeah, yeah, I get on some maybe existential level that I'm really not in control, but I really, really, really like to do lots of things that lull me into the sense that I, I actually am. Richard Rohr also says that true spirituality is not a search for perfection or control or the door to the next world. It is a search for divine union now. The great discovery is always that what we are searching for has already been given. Again, it's not out there. When Jesus says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's an invitation to be open to God. However God finds you, however God finds us right now. To trust that God meets us, envelops us, loves us, hopes and dreams alongside us, collaborates and co-participates with us, even co-mourns and grieves and laments with us as we go through these times. Interestingly, the passage Jesus reads from Isaiah is seemingly cobbled together from three different scriptures in the scroll of Isaiah. And just as notable as the three that Jesus decided to cobble together uh, in this reading from Isaiah that proclaims release from the captive and that the blind will see and healing and all sorts of wonderful things of, of justice bringing and wholeness to the world, um, is that in Isaiah 61.2, one of the verses that Jesus claims, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he states that, but then interestingly leaves out the next verse, or the next line of that verse, and the day of the vengeance of our God. I can't claim to know fully, or even very well at all, the mind of Jesus. But it's interesting to me that as he returns home and touches on these scriptures that would have been well known, that he doesn't see his mission having a strong resonance with this idea of God returning in violence or in wrath to the world. That this is not how Jesus wants to identify his program, his life, his way. In that moment, 
leaving out that verse doesn't seem to get him in trouble. I do wonder if there were some people that said, I think there's another line to that, Jesus. How come you didn't continue it? But as his understanding of Isaiah and even more his own practice of life comes into clarity, it does seemingly become more problematic for him. Uh, I have a friend who uh, is an aspiring, I don't even know if aspiring any longer, he is a film critic, and he knows way more about film than I could ever uh, hope to know. And he has some pretty polarizing uh, thoughts about uh, the state of film, particularly vis-a-vis superhero films and how that seems to be the only thing uh, that can make it in Hollywood these days. And what does that say about us? And how are those movies even perhaps shaping our mindset and our worldview and our expectation? And are they just reflecting and mirroring us? Or are they also... Uh, part of the conversation. And so it's interesting. I have not even seen, but maybe I think the first 30 minutes of uh, the first episode of the new TV show Peacemaker that's in the DC universe. But uh, early on, this this superhero, this larger than life person with the name Peacemaker uh, just makes this statement that I think is meant to sort of crystallize his character and perhaps help us to think about how we think of peace when he says, I made a vow to have peace no matter how many people I have to kill to get it. Right? He has this sense that I will do whatever I need to do to be in control, to coerce, to manipulate, to ensure that my understanding of right wins out and that Peace can happen as long as it happens at the end of the edge of my sword. And I don't think any of us would be that blatant or explicit, or maybe a few of us would be, uh, about our desire to control the world. I think oftentimes we can sort of be tempted when someone is saying, hey, if you'll just let go along with what my program and what I'm trying to do, I can offer you this. Where... Do you long to see God at work in your life and in our world today? Maybe the last few years have been so challenging, so stretching that it's hard for you to even have much imagination or hope about how God might be at work in our world and in our life today. How much does it stretch your faith to look at your life and our world in hopes of glimpsing this today? Maybe you would say, I just, to even consider that question uh, feels like a manipulation given all that I've gone through. And I can understand that. It's been a challenging, challenging season that we have collectively experienced. And then each of us has had our own challenges individually uh, in the middle of this collective suffering and trauma. Denise Ackerman talks about power and she states this way, a conventional understanding of power is the ability or means to accomplish ends. Ideally, power is reciprocal, collaborative energy that engages us personally and communally with God, with one another, and with all of creation in such a way that power becomes synonymous with the vitality of living fully and freely. Jesus' understanding of power does not emphasize vengeance or violence. It is the power to bring this liberation, healing, and reversal for the oppressed, hurting, and outsider. It is a power that invites us simultaneously into something larger, 
the life of the divine, as well as our connection to everyone and everything. There's something internal about this power, our experiencing of our belovedness and sacredness at a foundational level of being that no one and no thing can take away from us. But which sadly at times we do deny ourselves again and again. When we allow this kind of cooperative and collaborative power to flow into us and through us and from us, we are anchored to God's liberating love in a way that holds us, even as external situations push and pull us. Though I have like zero nautical experience in everything I've seen on television and film, my understanding of the anchor is right, the ship still can move around a little bit. It just keeps the ship in a general area so that it doesn't float off, right? And that is often how I have experienced uh, the challenge of these last couple of years. It, it does feel like storms have beaten against us individually and collectively, and yet hoping to stay anchored to something in the middle. Um, this passage goes on. When they, being the crowd in Nazareth, heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their own town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. This is not the power they had been expecting. Perhaps they might not have settled, or perhaps they might have settled for an overflowing cup of primary power that would be given to them, and then they, as generous benefactors, could distribute out to others as they pleased. But the sense that Jesus is challenging all of their norms about where God is at work and, and how to expect and anticipate that really seems to get underneath their skin. Jesus' understanding of power and peace that lifts up the outsider, whoever and wherever they are found. So what was their problem? Our text isn't explicitly clear. Could it have been a problem of othering? Is it the fact that in the two examples Jesus chooses from the Hebrew Bible of Elijah with the widow and Elisha with Naaman the Syrian, that these are outsiders ethnically, nationally, and one case militarily. Perhaps that what is, it's what it is. And they were thinking, surely God cannot be at work in those people. Maybe it was a problem of exclusion. Uh, it's kind of the reverse. Maybe not just that God was at work with those people, but Jesus seems to imply, yeah, you know, there were lots of people in Israel that God could have been at work in, but instead God was over here and those who had felt like they should be insiders, now felt themselves to be excluded in a way that was really uncomfortable for them. Perhaps they were asking, how can God leave us in this terrible place? Perhaps it was compounded by the dashed expectations. In Luke 4.23, it says, the crowd is saying, do you hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum? They have this sense of, Jesus, we, we know what you did on the road. We can't wait to see what you're going to do for the hometown crowd. This is going to be amazing, a wonderful day. Uh, and in the story that Jesus reminds them of, he even talks about that in Israel, this was in the past, the heavens were shut up for three years and six months. That's 
a long time of communal suffering. And perhaps they related that to their own sense of exile under the Roman imperial oppression. Perhaps they were thinking, how can this not finally be the moment of our relief? We've all probably found ourselves both trying to make light of and at times just trying to avoid the despair of, oh, here we go again. Is this another round? Is this another season? What's going to be the next thing? And wondering when our relief will finally happen. Our scripture concludes, but he, being Jesus, passed through the midst of them and went on his way. They seek to violently oppose this insider turned outsider by throwing him off a cliff. Jesus does not capitulate to them, but he also does not meet their violence with his own sense of show of a power that they would know by calling out an angel of armies or asking, can anybody lend me a sword? Will anyone come to my aid to help me push back this crowd? Instead, mysteriously, Jesus is able to pass through them and continue on his mission. He refuses to have this conversation on their violent terms. We find ourselves at times on the edge of cliffs. Interestingly, Jesus chose to go there. Presumably, if he can mysteriously pass through the crowd and go on his way, he could have done it long before he found himself at the edge of this cliff, right? He chose to let them get him to the edge of this cliff, perhaps to reveal to them the very violence that had taken root in their hearts collectively and to the ends they were willing to go to ensure that their worldview won out. Nevertheless, this act on Jesus is not merely trying to find some moderate middle, not just standing for nothing or racing toward the lowest common denominator. Jesus has already laid out in Isaiah very clearly his values and his vision. That's the thing that itself is causing division. But even as that division becomes clear, he refuses, he refuses to mirror the destructive way that they have put before him. Robert Jones Jr., in a quote that is often attributed to James Baldwin, says, we can disagree and still love each other unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression and denial of my humanity and right to exist. He was originally tweeting this when he was uh, in a Twitter conversation with several other black activists about how best to continue to work together on behalf of the black community. And though he acknowledges there's a universality to some of these statements, he also was very clear about wanting people to know that this was rooted in a black voice advocating on behalf of the black community. And that's where it finds itself. There are ways that we can be connected to our values and yet still choose to engage in nonviolent communication in creative, nonviolent action. There are ways that we can be rooted to the now, and I think contemplative prayer is one of those beautiful things. And I hope that you know that later in the month of February, there's going to be a contemplative prayer workshop. Later in the spring, there's going to be a nonviolent communication workshop. And both of these are great ways to begin to embody this countercultural example that Jesus gives us. Recently, I returned to my church in Austin. It was not to preach a sermon. This is the church that I grew up in. 
but to have a conversation across difference. My faith had stretched and grown in significant ways since I was a teenager or college student, and I needed to have this challenging conversation. I admit that I was caught up in the tension of wanting to steal myself in case it felt like I was about to be pushed off a cliff, and yet also wanted to remain open enough that I could see if friendship might continue. I was clear about the values that we continued to share in common and also about the ways that we saw scripture and life uh, and even just theology in the Bible very differently. Uh, and to my delight, in this instance, there was enough ground to be both clear about those differences and what we held in common that we could still affirm one another's humanity and our hope for its flourishing, even after having undergone very, very different journeys over the last 15 years. Though admittedly, peacemaking does not always end this way. I wonder if sometimes we become so dualistic in these moments because this leaves us in control. It can be challenged to be opening, to be open to entering into something greater than ourselves who has overcome it as of, whose outcome is as of yet still unknown. But may we continue to open up ourselves and continue to be willing to follow Jesus along this way of understanding power and peacemaking through his example. May we welcome everything in this moment because peace will be found in no other place. May we be patient and compassionate with ourselves when welcome is elusive and inner peace seems far away. May we work toward peace that does not mirror the violence, coercion, and control around us. May we be steadfast and creative co-partners working for vitality and liberation in our world.